Welcome to Series 2 of Assembly Point, a monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. Following a successful first series, Assembly Point provides a collective space in which industry leaders can explore the most pressing issues in fire safety and share expert information and advice. Please be aware that the views expressed by guests in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the FPA. We hope you enjoy this episode of Assembly Point. Hello and welcome to the Fire Protection Association's Assembly Point podcast. Uh, I'm Dr Jim Glockling, Technical Director at the FPA and Risk Authority. Today I'm joined by Tom Roach, Senior Consultant at FM Global, and Mike Rooney, Chief Executive Officer at Resilience First, to explore the relationship between fire regulation, building and business resilience, and insurance. Resilience describes the ability to survive disaster and can be analysed in terms of the susceptibility, vulnerability and recoverability of a business or a property to any peril such as fire or flood. In general terms, following an adverse event, a resilient business or service provider will not suffer critical loss. The measures used may be financial or impact upon delivery of service. Okay, now the first question for Tom and Mike, and starting with Mike if I may. Mike, the UK's building regulations for fire are minimum standards, and many might assume that property resilience objectives will be an integral part of them. How meaningful, in your opinion, are the regulations to supporting resilience within the commercial and service estates? Well, I think this comes back to the definition for resilience, because we're not only looking at physical infrastructure, which is obviously how those uh, regulations are framed, because there's a wider resilience to that, which is the systems in which they operate. And I think that's the whole point around resilience itself. If you take Grenfell Tower, there were failures across the board, and one of them was around the responsiveness of the blue light services. So whilst regulation and building regs kind of apply to physical structures, we need to look at people's uh, ability to adapt, to respond and be agile to whatever crisis or shock uh, to which they are attending. So I would think, I, I just want to frame it like that, because saying it's only just part of uh, the whole resilience con- concept. Okay, thank you. Tom, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I, I think um, Mike has a very good point in the fact that when we think of resilience, we have to think more broadly about an enterprise or the services that are being delivered. What I do find is people get confused sometimes between building regulations and you know, what, it, what the outcomes building regulations will deliver as part of that thinking. I did some work with an organisation called the Business Sprinkler Alliance a few years ago, and they did a survey of small to medium enterprise, and they asked that question, you know, will your property be adequately protected against fire you know, if you follow the building regulations? And 70% of business owners said yes. And then you have to point out, well, actually, that's not what the building regulations are there for. They're there to provide like a minimum basis for you know, fire safety for individuals in the building. It doesn't necessarily mean your property is adequately protected against all fire events. And as Mike's pointing out, if you think about services provided from that building, if you want them to be resilient, you're going to have to think a bit more about what outcomes you want from that building or those services in the event of something untoward happening. And that's something that building regulations aren't designed to do. And that means business needs to sort of do some more to sort of think about those issues. And I think Mike's right. It's not just the physical assets, it's also looking at the services that have been delivered and how they're delivered and who you may be relying on to help you do that. Right, thank you. 
So is it too cruel or too harsh to say that um, our building regulations as they currently stand are being singly focused on life safety ashore only evacuation before collapse of that building and people should assume that there is little more? Personally, I don't think it's too harsh because I think it's one of the unintended consequences of the direction of travel that we're in. But if we reframe that into the resilience discussion, it's really understanding that's the outcome that's delivered by regulation. And then thinking about, well, this is my business or this is my enterprise or this is the building I'm trying to operate. In the event of something bad happening and across the life of a building, it might be a fire, it might be a flood, it might be a cyber attack. Well, how do you want it to perform or what outcomes do you want? How quickly do you want to recover? And it's recognizing the gap that's that's there and trying to do something about it. And I'm I'm sure that's you know that's part of what Mike was getting at saying about thinking about the whole the whole thing, not just one aspect. Mm -hmm. But I do think you're right that you know we've got to be very clear about the outcomes delivered by regulations and not overestimating them but also keeping them into perspective in terms of what actually more needs to be done. Okay, so if they're not mandated, who do you think are the groups that need educating? Uh, does sufficient guidance exist? Is there sufficient expertise to draw upon? And will it actually get done at the end of the day if it's not ingrained in law? Tom, I don't know whether you could just start on that. I think there's something that uh, we need to sort of recognise that's shifting uh, in society, which is there used to be a time at which having a fire or a flood or an earthquake befalling one of your assets was seen as completely bad luck. Mm. And in the business community now, well, actually that's transferred into, well, that's not just bad luck, but what are you going to do now in response to that? And there's a lot more pressure from shareholders and other people looking at the governance of businesses and saying, well, is this bad luck or are we seeing bad management in the fact that we're not responding positively to these or we haven't prepared for some of these events or business hasn't prepared adequately for these events. So when we talk about education, I think, you know, organizations like Resilience First, raising the profile of what does resilience mean, you know, along with people like myself working in the insurance community and FM Global, it's talking to businesses and taking them on that journey to sort of talk through those issues about resilience. What does it mean? What does it mean to their business? What practically can be done I do think there's an element in certain areas where government could help with regulations, but I do think a lot of it will come through governance of business actually driving that behaviour and shareholders through governance driving that behaviour because actually shareholder value is being hugely impacted by some of these events over time and there is this distinct uh, difference between the winners and the mm. losers. We've perhaps come on to that. Absolutely. Mike, have you anything to add? Yes. I I think I'd agree with everything. Uh, I think it's about leadership and taking responsibility. And there's a sort of a, a cop out, if you like, that if I just tick all these boxes, that's it. And I've now complied. And that's always my concern with, with, with that sort of approach. And which is why I'm concerned about legislation, because it ends up, you know, you have the standard risk register, you all go through that and you all put it away. And it's broader than that. It is about leadership. It's about governance. Uh, it's about empowerment to staff. Uh, and within that, it's agility and adaptability. These are the key factors that help people to be resilient. So in terms of being prepared, managing whatever the shock and the stress is, and I think the other part, coming out better 
than when you went into it, uh, because clearly you could be just crushed by it. And we can see that through the pandemic. Some businesses were about to teeter on the brink before the pandemic. Pandemic finished them off. And I kind of, it's, it's very much uh, the phoenix rising from the ashes. So businesses survive and come out better. New businesses are created as a result of the shocks and stresses that uh, take place. So I think that's why we want to, and all agreeing, I think quite violently, that it's an all systems approach that we want here, uh, not just little bits of it. I think one of the sub-questions you were getting to, well, who needs it, uh, the knowledge, I think everybody does. But if you want to prioritise that, it's, it's small businesses that uh, don't have the time. They've, they've got to do about 900 things, keep all those plates going up, up, up on their bamboo poles. And they're the ones that need guidance and tools to, to help them uh, to be more resilient. But I think at the end of the day, it comes back to people sharing, sharing their best knowledge and practice, uh, sharing the disasters that they've had and what they've learned from them and then helping to co-author co uh, new uh, IP in, in resilience. Now, there's a lot of information out there. I mean, uh, it's one of those things you go mining for it for a very long time. And part of the rationale for Resilience First is to bring all that information together in one place and to share it with our ecosystem and, if you like, our community and broaden that out so that people become as knowledgeable as possible within this framework. And the role of the managing director in all of this is absolutely crucial. Tom alluded to, you know, many of these events sort of appearing blameless. And, and certainly we see statistics that 80% of businesses after a major upset go out of business in the next three years. And I, I often reframe that to say 80% of businesses demonstrate themselves to be incompetently managed within three years after a major event because the, this is, it's all about planning. If that planning is not in place, it's a failing of management. I, I think that's, that's what I was trying to say in terms of we're transitioning from this, this position for the discussion on resilience that we know about resilience. We're expecting you know, uh, companies to sort of act and do things to be more resilient. If it's not happening, people are seeing that that is something's gone wrong. You know, I, I work in the large corporate space and you can see it and there have been studies and we've used organizations to do those studies that look at events and then ask, well, what's happened to shareholder value, say, oh, over a year? And it's, it's pretty stark that you see that, you know, over an event happens and you look at a portfolio of companies and you sort of see, who are some of the winners and losers and that difference you know can be you know markets decide quite quickly that the response is good from this company they add to the shareholder value it goes up by 10 or 15 points across the year but you can also see some of the losers who quite immediately the response isn't so good it's not as transparent it's not as precise and their value drops and that can be in response to a, a cyber attack. It can be in response to mm -hmm. a flood event that's happened somewhere around the world. It could be a response to a major fire. And I think that's where I'm sort of saying is it's really becoming one of those business imperatives to sort of demonstrate your credentials in resilience to sort of show that, you know, as Mike was alluding to, it's really a case of demonstrating that you've considered these events, you've put in place something to sort of mitigate or manage them. And then when they happen, you can demonstrate that response to those events. Um, and that old adage of sort of saying, well, it's all insured, 
only placates people for about five minutes. It's that next phase where everybody's watching you and saying, well, how do you respond? And the phoenix from the flames or the phoenix from the flood or whatever the analogy is, you sort of look at it and think, you know, that's not a really good management practice just to expect it's going to happen. There's a lot of effort and energy that goes into managing that situation and people are watching. And I think that's where this, this notion of resilience becoming more and more of a factor that people are looking at from a governance mm -hmm. point of view and external shareholders in businesses looking at and saying, well, how are people responding to some of these events? It's becoming more about some of these key moments of truth that decide quite quickly whether a, you know, a business is on the up or a business has got some challenges. You know, that's that's what the, you know, my view. So we have some, uh, we'll come back to insurance uh, in, in a moment, but we have obviously different industry sectors and some of them are clearly more warmed up to resilience than others. And certainly in the manufacturing industry, it's very commonplace and it's very easy to justify the investment to support it from the balance sheet and it's done with rigor. But what about the other sectors such as um, the service providers, the schools, the hospitals, care homes? Do you believe there's the same level of understanding of resilience and value placed on it? Because after all, whilst what they're delivering is, is maybe not to profit, it's still service delivery, uh, which is equally important, obviously. Well, I was going to give the example of hospitality, which by all accounts should have been wiped out as part of the pandemic. It was all stop-go, stop-go, major supply chain issues when they came out of it, and rising costs. But they're still there, and how did they do that? Uh, and a lot of it was around agility, because they pivoted the business and changed the way they do business to accommodate them. So, so you know, the restaurants went over to, to, to home deliveries, uh, they'd never, lots of them have never done it. You know, you've got five-star restaurants, certainly you could ring them up and order it. It would be on its way. And they survived through that. Uh, I think uh, there is awareness across, like, hospitals and the rest of it, because, again, they all came through. They uh, re-diverted resources to, to, to other areas to, to cope with patients, etc., etc. So there was an innate resilience within the within the system but then you can point to all sorts of examples where it fell fell over uh, when the res respiratory kit and various other things and they didn't have enough machines bad procurement policies you know stuff that had been left in a warehouse for years and, and the rubber had frayed on it i mean all of these things where there was no real and everybody would say ah it's it's him or them and various government agencies were found to fail and in fact have now been disbanded uh, and they have regrouped. Uh, there's a lot to learn from this pandemic in that the way we all reacted to it uh, and delivered on the ground. So I suppose in answer to your question, it doesn't have to be profit motivated. But if you're delivering a service, you need to be resilient and some parts of the public sector got that a lot and, and, and did very well, uh, others didn't. I'll just carry on that theme. I think mm -hmm. it, it's very different depending on which sector you're in. In some sectors, availability of your service is so critical that it's one of those key measurables about what you do. Mm. And I think that's where you see more focus on this. If, if, if you need to be available 100% of the time, the minute you drop for five minutes, it's very noticeable, so people manage that directly. I think your point really gets to, in some other sectors, is somebody watching some of these things in terms of what are some of the critical nodes in our business to sort of work out 
okay if we can't deliver that so when you talk about education you know if we lose a school you know is somebody thinking about that we, we normally just mm -hmm. react you know when we took at some of some of the hospitals and some of the things that we've seen during the pandemic i think mike's point about businesses and, and hospitals and services have been able to sort of pivot to sort of say we need to do this and redirect resources whether that was part of a plan mm. or it was all the management coming together and saying we need to do and that brought focus to this i think in the, in the future we'll find out a lot about some of those things but i think for some of the businesses that pivoted and were more agile i think what you could see was their management were very clear that this is what they needed to do and they brought the business with them i think some others may have sort of found themselves in positions where they were dragged to do by others and i think that's the difference is are you thinking about some of these situations and have you got systems in place beforehand to sort of think about how could you do some of this thing you might not have thought about all these scenarios but have you got that process and thinking in place or are you just reacting as you move along the sort of continuum and i think there's a slight difference there between different sectors depending on how close you are to that that edge that sort of says i need to be available and what's my window of pain and when i talk about that i think you know you can see that the car industry the computer industry some of the service industries that if they're not on screen we, we vote with our feet and we buy from somebody else some things can be inherently resilient, but actually we talk about business continuity planning, which is to have the forethought to, uh, to plan. But I, think that's, I think it's a bit broader when you talk about business, business continuity, people think about reaction to an event now. I think this part of it is thinking about your business and sort of thinking about how to make it resilient and what will stop it, mm. what causes it pain. So you know where to focus. That is part of that business continuity planning, but I think there's another step there sort of looking at, well, what could be done now to make it, to harden it in a way, to sort of say, well, if that happened, we're going to make it less painful. It's still going to be painful, but we're going to have something in place that's sort of going to minimise that or mitigate that. And I think there's a slight difference there between what I see people too, traditionally talking about business continuity planning versus that thinking about how resilient is my business and what can I do to mitigate some of those events or potential events that could, could threaten us in the future. Okay, thank you. But uh, Tom, just returning to insurance, I mean, as an insurer yourself, you must have been confronted by the argument that insurance alone is resilience enough. Is this the case? And, and if not, why not? Uh, I think it's a, very, it's a very emotive subject. And I think that the best way to sort of look at this is, I think insurance is part of the solution. It's not the solution. And why I say that is it, insurance and sort of waiting for, for the, a contract to be in place. And I look at myself as somebody who's grown up in the insurance industry, waiting for something to happen and then responding to it has never proven to be a good strategy. Mm -hmm. And when I think of insurance alone being enough, that's that sort of strategy. It's almost like saying, I don't need to do anything else. I've bought cover. That could be, could be a plan, but the, the more successful clients I've sort of worked with, it's more of a journey. And what I've discovered in my life is if I want to act as somebody who just goes along and says, this is wrong, this is wrong, you need to change this, you need to change. I'm not going to be successful. What I need to be is an advisor to my clients to help them along the journey to sort of say and have that discussion about their business, what makes their business work, get some more context. And then when you're talking about things that you look at as an insurer and think, well, that could hurt, then you can put it into context and have a more grown up discussion about what does this really mean to you? And then there's more of a management discussion, at which point insurance is part of that discussion but it's not the focus of the discussion. It's about well, what does this mean to your business if this stops? 
And at which point I transitioned from being another person sort of like, you know, auditing and telling people mm-hmm. that they've got something wrong to I work as an advisor to somebody. And I think that's, from my point of view, is one of the things that I look at as what I've learned in my role in FM Global is that's what I need to be. And insurance is part of that discussion, but it's not the only discussion. The real discussion is about have we understood the business? Have we understood what the impact of some of these events could be? Can we have a, a proper discussion about what could be done about that? And whether that's putting sprinklers into buildings or looking at hardening somebody's uh, cyber security, mm-hmm. they're all parts of those discussions about how do we make a business more resilient? But the only way to really do it is to sort of transition from that. It's just about cold, hard insurance to this is a broader process that we need to go through and understanding the business and understanding the risks and putting them into context so that we can have a meaningful discussion is more more rewarding for everyone. Yes, yeah. So insurance isn't an enabler to be reckless, essentially. No, it's it's a tool that you need in your toolbox and every business will need it. But I think it's actually if you rely on it as the only tool, I think you're missing something huge. I'm sure Mike has has more to say on this point. <laughs> I think I think you touched on it. It's this moral hazard here. It's like you know, I can't claim my uh, you know money off off the insurance company. The last thing you want to do is claim the insurance because they're going to put the premiums up on you, or you'll find you're uninsurable because no one will go near you. I mean, it's just it's just plain daft as a strategy. It doesn't work guys um it really doesn't and again if we're taking a kind of whole societal approach well insurance uh, not everybody's insured against everything so you're reliant on the guy in the you know in the office below are they insured or you know uh, they may not be so you can have a third party claim against them but they haven't been insured it, it's it's just it's I, you know, uh, it's really having your head in the sand, this. And uh, Tom I'm, was, was mentioning the role of insurance is as an enabler. It helps you. Uh, and here's a journey and it's, it never ends because there's other things that happen. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, on that, in, in, in your career, I mean, you have vast career experience for some major and complex companies. I mean, how, how have you sort of embedded the concept of resilience and, and, and what are the challenges that you faced in that? But, but, but the thing is, I didn't, never did because I had to learn about resilience because I looked at it historically as business continuity, risk management. So I had a very narrow view. So whatever the organisation was doing, I really didn't look out beyond them and about, you know, when I was in the milk business that, you know, the, the neighbors of the milk depot or whatever that called for, that, that wasn't part of it. it. It was far more, let's do a risk register, we'll identify things, uh, we'll do some exercises around that. And that, and that, that was the basic rhythm of it. it. It wasn't a holistic approach, I'm ashamed to say. And when I was at London First, we had a security and resilience network, and it mostly talked about security and terrorism. It was always, oh, let's train for terrorism threat and the bomb. Actually, if you look at it, your chances of a terrorist attack are remote compared to other things. Uh, and we know that, but we, we, in our minds, we kind of get fixated on it. And we set up 
resilience first because we suddenly had a blinding light which was we can't just have a security and resilience network just in London. We need to look at it and turn it round the other way and say what we want to focus on is resilience and part of that is security and risk management and all these other nice things but resilience is at the heart of it and we should be doing this on a UK basis and we should be doing it on a global basis. So we got spun off out of uh, London First to do that with funding from the members because we had a that light bulb moment, <laughs> a Damascus moment. We suddenly realised that resilience is systems, it's societal and it's much broader than us keeping a, a risk register. Yeah, I think, right. I think the interesting thing, uh, I, I've been in the insurance business for nearly 30 years and what Mike is alluding to is something that I would say I see as, as, as a change. Maybe at the beginning of my career, a lot of effort was put into identification. What's wrong? <laughs> you know, and then as we've moved forward, it's been more about, well, what could be done about that? You know, I work for a business where, you know, the motto is the majority of loss is preventable and people sort of go, really? And you think, well, actually, if you think about it and you look at some of these things, there are that next step of the risk management process about mitigation and looking at, well, what could you do? What are the sensible things that could be done? Is there a case for more investment in some of these things? And that thinking has sort of come more to the fore. And then as, as we've become more aware of some of the risks around the world and the fact that perhaps businesses is more global than it's ever been, there's a need to sort of broaden the horizons to think more sort of about the connected world and what it means to you. Because living in ignorance and just assuming that the product is going to turn up, you know, until the day it doesn't, isn't really good business. It's about looking at your supply chains, looking where your products are coming from, who you have relationships with, and what are some of their risks and some of their exposures, because at the end of the day, it will stop you delivering. And I see that journey is continuing as we face, you know, cyber threats now, and people having to sort of think, what can we do about that? But the interesting thing for me is a lot of things that we've learned about how to deal with fires and floods earthquakes the same principles apply to the cyber threat we might need different skills and we might need different um, abilities to sort of uh, mitigation strategies but it's the same thinking about have we got have we understood this and most importantly have we moved into that phase of mitigation have we moved into that phase of what can we do about this not just I've identified it and I've given it a score <coughs> can I do something about it and make it better and you know like I said, insurance may be part of that discussion, but I think it's part, mm -hmm. it's not the, the only discussions. And I think that's what I see as over that 30 years is that transition from identification into more what can be done and a, a more global sense of interconnectivity. Okay, so and following on for what Michael was saying about, uh, you, you know, that there's a, there's a national and international sort of well-being element to this, I suppose, that uh, healthy business means healthy cities, healthy cities means healthy country. I mean, is there, this is of such importance, surely there's a larger role that government should be playing in this. And really, it's a, a, a question for both of you. If the government were, could do anything to assist and mandate for resilience, uh, is there anything that they, they could and should do, in your opinion? What? Interestingly, the, the, the government had its uh, integrated review, the, the, the final uh, report is going to come out, I think, uh, later in the autumn. And one of the elements of this is national resilience, and there's a number of strands uh, within that, uh, and one of them is around climate change. 
uh, and the government's role in that uh, and all the resilience challenges that comes with it. But the minister who commissioned this review, his objective was to make the UK the most resilient country in the world. And that shows you how far we've come since, you know, talking on on earlier. It's an appreciation that this is a whole society approach. And the international aspects of this is that you can learn and share from others uh, across the globe because these things are generic and whilst you might apply them differently locally, you know, you can take learnings in this country and apply them elsewhere. But it does show the change in government thinking and I think we get down into a bog if we just think of legislating everything away. This is a delusion. You can't legislate things away. You have to work collectively and collaboratively both with the government business, all sections of society, if you actually want to be more resilient and recognise that. Right, but there is government thinking and government action. I don't see too much in our own building regulations, Tom, I value your comments, to, uh, you know, to, to lead us to conclude that, that much is being done, certainly in respect of improving the resilience of the built estate, which, if anything, is probably getting more um, friable. Well, I think I think that's one of one of our challenges. If if you look at it, we've all lived through sort of a wake up call that the country had in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, with the floods, where all of a sudden I think mm -hmm. government woke up to the fact that we probably didn't have enough knowledge about flood across the country and what was vulnerable. So they put in place a series of measures to sort of map all that out and start thinking about how do we make our infrastructure electrically less vulnerable to flood. I think there is a need to sort of follow through some of that thinking and judiciously look at how, how do we sort of help regulation or nudge the right behavior. And some of that, I think, when we look at things like building regulations, I am always amazed that the direction of travel of build, you know, building regulations doesn't involve some of that resilience thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, following the floods, we did put flood resilience into um, our, our sort of thinking around buildings, but it's mm -hmm. never been really followed through. You know, and, and you could sort of argue, is that because we didn't really want to do it or is it we just it's too difficult? I think there are elements where you could look at this and say, are there there are moments for intervention? And I think building regulations is a moment for intervention, but it really comes back to government thinking, what does it want to sort of achieve longer term? You know, with some of these things. Similarly, as we invest in infrastructure, I think government can take a lead there by sort of making it clear we want some of these pieces of infrastructure, whether it be a school or a hospital, the government is investing in to be more resilient and sort of incentivizing that because they do it in other ways when they're sort of talking about we want we want to use a new building technique or a new business mm -hmm. model government can incentivize it that way and so it doesn't have to always be legislation it can be that nudge that says we need you to think in this way about this and incentivize people to sort of think well actually the best way of doing this is to make this resilient and here's some resilient thinking and government want this resilient thinking. And I think then that sort of starts to tear through. So I think it's a combination. I don't think it's just pure legislation. I think there are interventions that can be made with things like building regulations to sort of promote resilience, resilience thinking, particularly in certain types of buildings and types of construction. But I think there's also that nudge from when government spends our money <laughs> to build infrastructure to say, well, actually, we want them to be resilient. Don't place it in a floodplain, protect it, construct it in a certain way, set criteria for how, how it should be available. All those sort of things that sort of drive resilience thinking into a business, 
the mm-hmm. government can do that, and that's a nudge. It's one surprising thing for me on Flood, there was a recent, I think it's the CCC report, one of the things they said they had to do was get to business and tell business about Flood and raise awareness of Flood, because a lot of Flood awareness has, has gone rightly to homeowners. But there's a whole world mm. out there of business owners who also need that awareness of things they could do to make their properties more resilient. And it's a gap. So I think, you know, that sort of thing is where government can step in and sort of Bayes or others could step in and say, do you know what? Yeah. We could provide a nudge. <laughs> Just as Mike yes. is saying, is like, it's a nudge to sort of say, we want you to do this, or we're going to offer some small capital or some sort of um, incentive to sort of develop flood plans or local flood plans, whatever that may be. And that could become a grant or something like that. And it's mm-hmm. those sort of nudges I think the government can do that longer term could help business to sort of move off the step of, I'm not sure what to do. <laughs> I'm not sure what the next step is, or I haven't got the money to do that. Could government help with yes. that nudge? And so is there an example with your work with the Business Sprinkler uh, Alliance? Maybe uh, I think within that committee a lot of uh, um, things to do with tax breaks for sprinkler systems were discussed has there been any progress though i i think um government has very much shied away from some of those things right now because the direction of travel uh with uh, regulation thinking is is quite rightly on life safety but i think it hasn't broadened out yet into other Mm. things like property protection um and that's why we have to sort of think about well are there some other things there that government could do but i think it also comes back into joined up thinking around shifting the sort of perhaps the view of the building regulations to look at some of these resilience factors mm-hmm. and put them into the building regulations to help people with that nudge along the path. And I don't think it means coming out draconingly and saying you've got to do all these things. It's more these steps that nudge people along that path. And Okay, so, so at the moment it sounds like we're in a position where it needs good organisations like Resilience First, Business Sprinkler Alliance and the insurance industry to try and engage to spread the gospel of the need for resilience. But currently, in, from the government point of view, while there's lots of nice words, it's, it's currently in a position of just being rhetoric and uh, a lot more is needed really to, to take it forward. I, I think at times, uh, I think we have to recognise there's a, there's, a, there's a need for business to, to sort of like do its own thing mm-hmm. and there's a role for, for a government to nudge it along the way to sort of get to the right outcomes and I think at the moment what I see is we need to help through the things that we've discussed to sort of make the awareness of resilience and thinking about resilience with a wider audience higher and we could be helped with a few nudges and incentives from government but I don't think it's it's solely at the feet of legislation but I think the combination mm-hmm. of two could be incredibly powerful. I think it becomes more direct when we think about things like building regulations and guidance to building regulations. That could be a more direct intervention that could change the built environment as we go forward. But I think that's that there's a difference between those two things, you know. But I think it needs to be part of a wider discussion about these issues, and and with action. And I don't mean. I could keep discussing this with lots of other people for ages and government will go and nod. We need to help that discussion along. Excellent. Well, that's been absolutely fantastic. I think just to conclude, I'd just be interested in, in knowing for the, uh, if you could just say for the listeners uh, to this podcast of where they, where you think the best places to go for resources by way of follow up, follow up 
um, if anything has grabbed their attention today? Well, you, you could come to resilience first across the whole, the whole spectrum, if you like, of uh, resilience. There's the British standards. Uh, uh, they're working on new organisational uh, resilience standard, which should uh, come out later this year. So there's two places I would uh, recommend people. And if if you if you're looking to understand risk and other things, uh, I advocate if you came to FM Global, you come to our website. There's a whole myriad of different things there. There's the resilience index that actually benchmarks different countries for how resilient they are on a number of factors across the world. Mm -hmm. You might be surprised to find that sort of a Scandinavian country like Norway is very much top of the list um, and has been for a, for a number of years. Uh, and then there's, there is also material there that talks to things like we publish flood maps, earthquake maps globally that you could look at. So if you had facilities or as a business, you had facilities around the world and you wanted to understand what some of those exposures could be, you could look at that information too as well as a plethora of other videos and other things that could help you with that journey of understanding well, how could you make your sort of business more resilient. Thank you very much. And for correctness, we should say that insurance is provided by many other companies also. Tom, Mike, thank you ever so much for your insight today. It's been very informative and uh, I'm sure it'll be greatly appreciated by the listeners. Thank you ever so much. Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. To avoid missing out on future episodes, hit the subscribe button. To listen to previous episodes of Assembly Point, or for more guidance and resources on reducing the risks of fire, please visit thefpa.co.uk.